Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. I got a crazy idea for you. Some of the people, it's going to be beyond the pale. It is going to be so, so crazy. For others of you, you're just going to be in disbelief. But I want to share this crazy idea with you because I believe that there is a fantastic place to where we can all gather, collect our dysfunctional selves together and experience transformation in a way that the world can only dream about. And so I want to talk about that for just a few minutes. By the way, this is Rick Thomas, and this is Life Over Coffee. You can find me in my coffee shop lifeovercoffee.com. One-to-one interaction is the most efficient way to help each other change. Now think about that. One-to-one interaction. That is the most effective way for any person or two people to experience transformation. That is the heart of our brand. Life over coffee, doing life over coffee, creating conversations that, uh, that uh, move into transformation. For too many people, too many believers specifically, discipleship in a community in the context of the local church is not the place to where you see this kind of intentional reciprocality. I get the emails and I understand that. I know that there is work to do in our local churches. I get it. But I'm optimistic because I believe the Bible. The Bible teaches one another. And of course, in our families, that is first and foremost. But God has given us the local church to experience intentional reciprocality for our personal transformation as we love Him and love others most of all. Unfortunately, Favorite books and popular preachers have become our primary disciplers, and that is not God's best. No matter how wonderful that celebrity preacher is or how fantastic your favorite book was to you, those are not the means of grace that God has given us primarily to experience sanctification. And one of those reasons is because It is a passive exercise, sitting and soaking and listening to a preacher or sitting privately and going through a book. I'm not throwing those two things out, but I'm saying that those are passive exercises that is a lot different than surgically illuminating and uniquely transformation that happens when two people are getting together, iron sharpening iron, spurring one another on to loving good deeds. Nothing, absolutely nothing, displaces a competent, caring friend who can exegete you with God's Word in a customizable way while bringing solutions that fit you, fit who you are, and what is happening in your life. I titled this talk, A Crazy Idea for Sanctification the local church. And again, I know for some of you, it will be too crazy to believe. Some of you, it will be too crazy that you, you'll you reject it out of hand because of what has happened to you. And again, I do understand it. I have talked to many people. In fact, because of where I live vocationally, uh, my, my job is interacting. As I've said often, I, I live on the underbelly of Christianity. And so I hear more stories than the average bear just by nature of what I do uh, for a living. Therefore, I, I'm not disconnected from reality. And I know that there are a lot of people that are, are hurting because of either what has happened to them uh, by a local church, by a pastor, by a Christian, or just the general ineffectiveness of a local church. 
but that doesn't change the truth. And one of the things, the truth about the local church being one of the two epicenters for primary transformation to take place, the local church and the family, it doesn't change the truth. No matter what has happened to us, you get hurt by a preacher, you do not stop listening to preaching. That is not logical to stop. You get hurt by someone in the medical community and you uh, do not uh, participate in the medical community any longer. That too is not logical. And so we can overreact because of what has happened to us. And I want to make a strong case for the local church because I have a high view of it. And even though we are a parachurch ministry, from my view, from my chair, all roads lead to the local church, and we spend time, a lot of time, communicating with a lot of people who come to us looking for help, and we're glad to help them. Uh, we've never turned anyone away, and, we, and by the grace of God, we never will turn anyone away, but we will never stop, by the grace of God, of letting them know that the primary means of grace is happening on the ground in their community, specifically with their local churches and their pastors. Some Christians sometimes isolate themselves while cuddling with books and famous online people, hoping to find safe, private, personal, marriage, or family transformation. And again, the temptation is understandable, but it is not primarily the Bible's way for one another sanctification. And I insert that, that, that wordage there, one another, because many of you know, uh, that there are so many one another's in the New Testament. And so Paul and the other writers also had a high view of companionship and the local church. The most frequent email requests I do receive are from people is questions regarding specific situations in their lives. Each morning I wake up, there are emails from real people with real problems looking for practical answers. They're not inter interested in what a book says. That's why they're asking us. These are hurting people, and they don't want to hear another sermon. They're looking for customizable care, not passively reading a book, flipping through the pages, or hearing a sermon online. They're looking for someone who will take the time to listen to them, to understand them, and give them valuable biblical feedback. And only another individual can do that. AI cannot do that, and neither will a preacher or a book, a, a, pre, a preacher who is preaching a sermon. Even the best books and even the most well-crafted sermons cannot do what a Christian can do when sitting in front of a person offering real answers. This kind of vision for discipleship requires work, and it is also super messy, and it is tedious, and it can be frustrating at times, and you can keep adding other descriptors as well because you have been there. It needs the discipler to dedicate real time to an individual. It requires patience and courage and discernment and wisdom. It requires the struggling person to be humble and open and honest and vulnerable. One-to-one -one interaction is how Jesus built his team and his followers. When you read through the four Gospels, you notice how Jesus rarely taught in a monologue-type format. I mean teaching. Though he was a teacher, and we say Jesus was a great teacher, and that is true. Interesting enough, 
instructively enough, the Bible does not give us a lot of scenes showing him teaching in the four Gospels. If you extract the Sermon on the Mount, you will not find much monologue teaching from Jesus. Using monologue was not his specialty. Jesus was a dialogue guy. If you pile up his communication, you're going to see a small pile of preaching, of monologue. But you will see a humongous pile of him dialoguing with other people. That was his primary mode of teaching. He spent nearly all of his time interacting with folks, showing them how to be Christ-like. One of the most significant weaknesses of the modern-day church is how we've given discipleship over to famous authors, Bible studies, podcasts, and sermons. Now, be careful here. This podcast is what you need. But let me be intellectually honest with you. What you really need is someone coming alongside you, as I have been saying. There is a place for life over coffee. There is a place for media, for discipling others. But it cannot, it must not, it should not be the primary method that you experience discipleship. The monologue discipleship model has created two adverse effects on the local church, at least two. You can probably add to this list, but I'll give you two. Side effect number one has led to the biblical counseling movement, especially parachurch organizations like mine. The biblical counseling movement deals with real people with real problems in a practical way, similar to the way that Jesus did. The church seems to be more focused on teaching. Still, when somebody has a problem, they refer the hurting person to a so-called professional because they don't have the time, they don't have the resources, or maybe they don't have the expertise to deal with, the sancti deal with sanctification issues. And so that is one side effect. In fact, I want you to hear that sentence again. Did it sound odd to you? When somebody has a problem, the local church can refer the hurting person to a so-called professional because they don't have the time, the resources, or the expertise to deal with the sanctification issues. The church seems preoccupied with programs and ministry demands while perhaps assuming that their people know how to counsel themselves. From a majority report perspective, they do not. That is one uh, side effect, one of the adverse side effects with the monologue discipleship model in our church, that we are preoccupied with teaching primarily, and we farm out the discipleship or the counseling, or we assume that people are counseling themselves, that they know how to do it. Side effect number two is a breakdown in the community because of an isolationist mindset where people feed themselves in private. People retreat to their books, their podcasts, and personal devotions to find answers to their most perplexing problems. Rather than running to the community inside the local church, the temptation is to become remote, insecure, and guarded about their authentic selves. There is a distrust of the community. Confidentiality is one of the more frequent questions individuals ask me. It could sound like this. I don't want anyone to know about what I'm going through. Now, essentially, what many of these people are saying, not all, but many of these people are saying, I want you to fix me so I can go back to the church. It is as though everybody wants a private room to separate from each other until they are doing better. 
you see a different picture when you read how Christ built his church or how the early churches poured themselves into each other. You're familiar with Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 about the early church. I want to share that passage with you and ask you, see if you can feel the community in that passage as you hear it. The people have all things in common. There is mutual sharing and caring and communal intrusion in each other's lives. Here it is, 42 through 47, Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, monologuing, and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church does not have a lecturer-to-student feel to it. It doesn't have a hurting isolationist-with-a-book feel to it. A sense of transparency, vulnerability, and humility bleeds through the passage. Gospel-centered people have nothing to fear. They have nothing to protect. They have nothing to hide. They have one common goal laid out in three parts. The goal is this. The, well, the goal is Jesus. That is the goal. And the three parts are this. Number one, personal. I want to know more about Jesus. Number two, communal. I want to experience Jesus' life with each other mutually. Number three, evangelistic. I hope to share Jesus with people who do not know him. That should encapsulate how we live out the gospel in our lives, personally, communally, and evangelistically. The early Christians were in each other's business, and what they were doing had a far different feel than the guardedness of the average Christian today. Regarding matters of the heart, today's Christian, in many cases, maybe the majority of cases, they prefer getting fixed in private only to resurface later to do community with fellow believers. The New Testament Christian was not that insecure or image conscious. They came just as they were, integrated with fellow strugglers, and mutually matured in a community. They were well aware what was going on in the lives of those around them, including their thought lives. The New Testament believers learned this gospelized living from Jesus' leaders. The folks Jesus trained passed on what they learned to others. It continued to move out in those concentric circles. And how did the Savior do it? Well, his primary discipleship style was living with the folks that he trained. Jesus knew that the buckshot monologue approach would not get the job done. He needed to get with the people, love the people, learn the people, lead the people from within their social context, discipling within the milieu, the social environments in which they live. 
You will not get to know a person the way that you should by attending a safe and sterile Bible study or a church meeting staring at the back of a person's head. Now, I am not saying biblical training and Bible studies are unnecessary or ineffective. Knowing the Bible is absolutely essential. But growing in Bible knowledge and being Christ-like, they're not the same things. Paul was one of the most learned students of his day. He was a Bible scholar. But poor Paul did not know how to take what he knew about the Bible and live it out biblically. Somebody had to teach him. Nicodemus was another learned Bible student who stumbled all over the new birth. He knew a lot, but was unaware of how to take that Old Testament which he had and practicalize it into his life. He, like Paul, needed someone to teach him. And then the Samaritan woman was also well-trained by her culture and trained a bit in religion. She was a hybrid in more ways than one. Her religious training was just as deficient as Paul's and Nick's. She needed someone to cuddle up beside her to unpack her. Jesus did not send her to a Bible study or ask her to listen to a sermon. No, Jesus exegeted her on the spot at a well. He took her took a real person and got into her real business by customizing the gospel for her for her real self while hanging in her social environment. Paul, Nick, and the Samaritan woman had one thing in common. They met Jesus in the milieu, in the natural social environment in which they lived. Jesus interacted with all his counselees where they lived. His discipleship method positioned him to be an effective discipler. He did not offer Paul, Nick, or the Samaritan woman an excellent book to read. He read them and then told them what he was learning. He pulled this off because he spent time with them. He knew them. Too many leaders meet their people at the church building or in other environments that are ministerially sterile or artificial. They listen to their problems, offer counsel, make a book recommendation, and send them on their way. It doesn't, that does not work well. And I'm in a similar boat. When people call me, they want to bring their world into my office to converse. I'm glad they're willing to come. I'm happy to serve them in the minimal way that I can help someone. But this puts me in a dilemma because I cannot help them comprehensively. They need someone on site in their lives to serve them, to observe them, and bring discipleship care to them. Jesus spent time eating, drinking, relaxing with his friends. He did life with those that he developed. Jesus knew them inside and out. He was aware of the nuance of their lives. What he got out of them by living with them was priceless information. The local church is the closest approximation in our culture today to what the Savior had in his day. Jesus lived in a small group, and within that small group, he divided his leadership development time differently. In fact, I want to lay out Jesus' calendar the way that we understand it by reading or learning his time commitments in the four Gospels. And I'll lay this out in six parts, with uh, the innermost part being where he spent most of his time. So number one, he spent, well, Jesus. He spent time with the, the Father, receiving refreshment. 
challenges and envisioning. So his primary time commitment was between him and God. And then as you move out to this next circle, as we understand his calendar in the four Gospels, he spent more time with Peter, James, and John. These guys got the top spots on his calendar. And then the next circle that moves a little farther out were the other apostles. He then spent time developing the rest of the team. And then number four, it was Mary, it was Martha, it was other friends. He never forgot about the community. He had many friends and was often with them, but he did not neglect building the main guys, his core team, who would carry out the mission and vision. And then the next circle was the multitudes. He preached to this group, and on occasionally he broke some bread to feed them, and there were other ministry efforts as well. By the way, with the multitudes, here's a pro tip. Here is a, here is a, a, delegation, uh, a delegation tip. Uh, is that uh, his team did the distribution. Jesus, he did the multiplying. And so as the multitude continues to grow, uh, you, cannot, you cannot be everything to all people. And so as you look at Jesus' daytimer, uh, you see that he worked with this core group, and then it worked out in these concentric circles. And when it got so big, uh, he understood uh, the gift and the process of delegation. And then finally, number six, this last group on the outer periphery, they were the Pharisees and the other resistors. Occasionally, he did apologetic and evangelistic work within this crowd. Jesus was a methodological man on a mission. His mission had two primary parts, die for the sins of the world, and get his main guys envisioned and equipped to carry the gospel message to the church. We only have to do one part of his mission, as outlined in Ephesians 4, verses 12 through 14. We're not dying for the sins of others, but we are equipping others to do the work of the ministry. And it is essential that the local church, the leadership of the church, knows how to do this so that when these people do come into our local churches, they're receiving that help. We're not farming them out, and we're not assuming that they can counsel themselves, and we're not passing them off onto passive exercises like reading a book or hearing a sermon. In our zeal to get the message out, we can be ineffective in developing our infrastructure, the local church. We do provide books and Bible studies while assuming our people are practicalizing the Bible into their lives. It, it, it is a, a mis, it's, it's a major miscalculation to think that you could pre preach a sermon and everybody is going to get it, that everybody is going to understand. Humanity just doesn't work that way. I don't work that way. How can I understand unless somebody guide me as the eunuch is telling Philip in chap, uh, Acts chapter 8? We don't follow up well. And then a decade later, you learn a leader's marriage is on the brink of divorce, and, and you're perplexed. How did that happen? I mean, they attended our church for two decades. They taught Sunday school forever. They led mission outreach. Every year, they are respected and loved by our church family. They have counseled dozens of our people. And we say, I never saw it coming. We were not involved in their lives. It's a miscalculation of the doctrines of sin and sanctification. And it's an assumption that sound preaching, good books, and ministry busyness were what they needed. Jesus did not leave sanctification solely to the preaching of the Word. 
The best discipleship is hands-on discipleship. We are 2,000 years removed from when the Savior trained His group, and His method is still the best. Yes, we have better technology. We have excelled in theological precision regarding our beliefs through many councils and creeds. We have written a dizzying amount of books and Bible study materials. And even with all these things, none of them can supplant building relationally, one-to-one, the way that Jesus did with another human being. The functional centrality of the gospel, working practically in the lives of the local church, is today's most significant need. The way that I seek to serve my church with this vision is pretty simple. There are three groups of people in my life today. In order of priority, as you look at that list that I gave you of Jesus' daytimer, it's my family, it's my church, it's everyone else. I know bits and pieces, more or less, and this and that about group three, everyone else. I don't know them well, and I have minimal impact on their lives. Then there is my family and church. I can't even begin to tell you what I know about them. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the old, our entire local church because that's not possible, reasonable, neither is it an expectation. But within that church, there should be a group of people that you're truly doing life with. And I know about them and what they know about me and how we engage each other is profound. Let me give you a few examples of what we know about each other and how we engage each other. For example, we have sinned against each other. We have been angry with each other. We have prayed for each other. We have cried with each other. We have uh, laughed with each other. We have secretly judged each other. We have confronted each other. We have encouraged each other. We have said hurtful things to each other. We have spent hundreds of hours in different contexts with each other. The local church is a dangerous and vulnerable group of people for the glory of God. After all this interaction, we are still not as effective as we need to be. We need to be more vulnerable and more dangerous. Now, I'm not discouraged, not at all. It is sanctification progress. It took the Savior three years with fewer distractions to get His group up to speed. It'll take us time, but what we cannot do is disengage from the process and isolate from the community and continue these passive sanctification processes of listening to sermons on our own time and reading books. There's a place for sermons and there's a place for books, but not primacy when it comes to sanctification. If you want to read what I just shared with you, the title of it is A Crazy idea for sanctification, the local church. If you type crazy in our search feature, you will find it. I would also encourage you to go to our store. This is one chapter in a longer book titled Local Church, and you'll find this chapter and about 15 other chapters that cover a whole lot of territory, and I want you to get it. It's a free digital download. I want you to get it. I want you to share it with a thousand of your closest friends. A crazy idea for sanctification, the local church. Here's a few questions. How do you change your family to make it more of a more effective sanctification community? 
Now, that would be a good discussion question to have within your family, no matter what that construction of family is. A family is a husband and wife. That is a family. A family could be more than that, a husband and wife and children, or a dad living alone with children, a mom living alone with children. But however that family is constructed, that is a conversation worth having. Number two, how must you change to help your church become a more effective sanctification community? And then number three, pick a person that you can have this type of life with and invite them into your life. Invite them into your marriage if it's a couple or invite them into your family if that's a better fit. But invite them into your life and begin to have this conversation with them. If you have that person identified in your mind, would you contact them today? In fact, go to lifeovercoffee.com and, and type crazy in and get this article, A Crazy Idea for Sanctification, the local church, and send it to them and say, hey, would you read this or watch the video or listen to the podcast? But would you take advantage of this resource and then let's meet next Tuesday. Let's do Life Over Coffee and let's talk about this. And you can print it off, go to the bottom of the article. There's a big print button right in the middle, at the very bottom, right under the article. And you can print it off and then you can make notes. Maybe for some of you, you could take this and and print it off and, and give it to everyone in your small group and say, hey, this is going to be a discussion topic for a week or two or three because there is something here and we want to grow up into this process if we are not already. And we want to be careful about the misunderstanding and the miscalculation that a sermon or a book uh, is the best way to experience transformation. Those sermons and books are generalized. They are written to the public at large. But when it comes to surgical sanctification, you don't need something, a generalized treatment. Now, I know many people will testify that I, I read this book and it impacted my life. I will give you the same testimony. I understand that. That's why I'm not saying those things are ineffective at all. They are very effective, but they are not most effective. There is a better way. It's the local church. And so I trust that this will help you to move directionally in a more effective way in the area of sanctification. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.